I currently live in a body that some, many, in fact, would call fat. I call this body strong and beautiful and wise. Guess who's right? I told you this season would get personal. You're listening to We're All All Right, the show that explores all the reasons we have to be hopeful, even joyful, about humanity and about our world today, despite what we see in the headlines. I'm your host, Phyllis Wilson. With the emergence of the body positivity movement onto the global stage via social media in the last 10 years, And with more and more mostly female public figures, actors, artists, models, and influencers who are actively celebrating their bodies and or who are simply showing up fully with neither explanation nor apology, combined with the more and more vocal backlash against such audacity, I say with great sarcasm, I'm thinking about our bodies, how we identify with them, how much meaning and importance we place on that identity, and the implications that has for the lives we live and what we get to do with those lives during our short time on this planet. I recently traveled to Colombia for a week-long retreat in the jungle. To say that the experience was life-changing would be an understatement. To say that it was intense would win the Understatement of the Year award. And every moment was sheer bliss, even the ones I'm about to describe to you. The first thing to know is that in order to access and to exit, this magical plot of jungle paradise, one must traverse a rather steep path of dirt and rocks, downhill on the way in and uphill on the way out, that quickly turns to mud and sliding rocks when it rains, which it did daily. Because of a delayed flight, I arrived to the jungle later than the rest of the group, and I arrived late at night. I suppose it goes without saying, though I'll say it anyway, that this path is lit only by the soft glow of a mobile phone, and barring that, by the sparkle of one's personality. I was not alone, however, and I am infinitely grateful for that, and for them, the two divine men who picked me up from the airport, carried my bag, and were my guides on the descent. Exhausted from the flight and the stress of the delay, a little dehydrated and not wearing quite the right shoes, it wasn't too far down the path that I started to seriously question whether I would make it or if I was going to need to plead in my very limited Spanish to be driven an hour and a half back to the city to stay in the hotel for the night. In truth, I wouldn't have done that. I would have sat my ass down in the mud and scooted down like a baby coming down the stairs before I gave up on this adventure. This was also the point and one of those rare moments in life where I became very aware, almost hyper aware of my body, its shape and its size, or 
A better way of saying that might be that I became hyper aware of how unaware I had been of my body up to that moment, in large part because one of the effects of the pandemic was, for me anyway, that I spent most of those two years existing without a whole lot of living, without a whole lot of challenge in the form of new places, new circumstances, new people, new interactions. So what I came to be intimately aware of during that time was the very familiar, very safe, cushy, and comfortable, and rather small space inside the four walls of my home where virtually nothing required my attention or awareness of my physicality, my physical form, my body. But here, on this jungle path, rocks sliding beneath my feet, my feet slipping from underneath me, my attention to my body was all that was required, and urgently so. I needed to know, to feel, which muscles to tighten, how to hold my arms, how to shift my weight, where my center was located to give myself the best chance of remaining upright, and plan B, should I fall, to give myself the best chance of being able to get back up again, with as little damage as possible, preferably none at all. Now, to be clear, anyone and everyone in bodies of all shapes and sizes does this sort of calculus in novel situations and contexts, especially in novel physical contexts that demand attention to the state of our bodies, even as we're normally unaware of this mental math and hoops jumping. I wasn't thinking about my weight or comparing myself to others or worrying about what other people think. Nope, not that day. That old gem of a story came a few days later. We had a free day or an integration day a few days into the retreat, and we decided as a group to head into a nearby town to wander around, shop, and experience a little culture. That meant traversing the path again, this time uphill. It was daytime when we headed out, so we had light this time, and it was sunny and dry, so the ground was relatively intact. In other words, we weren't trying to trek up a landslide. It was still steep, however, and that meant a strength and endurance challenge. It was about a third of the way up when most of the group passed me, except for one or two who kept me company and took it slow. And it was at this same point that their encouragement started. You got this, Phyllis, almost there, not too much further. And it was then that the tears came. They're coming now as I share this story, even as I've come gloriously out the other side of this experience, more so than I could ever imagined then. There I was, there little Phyllis was, the fat girl, the one to be pitied, and maybe even derided. But we'll humor her so we can actually make it to our destination before nightfall. That was the story in my head. That's what they were thinking. That's how they all felt about me. I was the fat girl, which by extension meant that they were the fit girls, the athletic girls, the popular girls. Uh, There it was, an even deeper layer to this story. 
these labels, these identities that we believe are real and that we cling to and that we believe others must be clinging to just as tightly, they stick with us even as we move well beyond them, beyond the playground and gym class and high school hallways. But on this particular day and this particular trek with this particular group of incredible conscious women and the several extra minutes it took me to make it to the top of the hill, I had an opportunity to rewrite the story. I started to hear their encouragement and cheerleading as love for me, for this journey, and for themselves. Because guess what? This uphill climb was challenging for them too. Yes, some had small frames. Some had fitness practices in which they were consistently challenging themselves physically and therefore had more muscle strength and endurance. Some were just closer to the ground. <clears throat> I mean, short. I, I mean, they were short. <laughs> and we were all excited to have made it to the top because that meant we were on our way onto the bus and into the town where we could all be together, and enjoy each other's company. Something that can't happen when it's not all of us together. And something that can't happen if any of us are clinging to an identity based on how our body is shaped and how it performs on any given day or in any given situation. A pretty decent metaphor for life right now, huh? Hey friend, thanks for being here. I know that talking about issues of identity, how we see ourselves and be ourselves, can feel pretty vulnerable. It is vulnerable. And it's the most liberating kind of conversation we can have and exploration we can go on. And it's exactly the kind of exploration I undertake with the clients I coach. If you're a coach, trainer, or consultant who wants to deepen your capacity to guide your clients to ask and answer and answer again the two most liberating questions we can ask, who am I and who am I really? I would love for you to check out my programs and get in touch head on over to phyllis.wilson.pw and click on Work with Phyllis. So before we get into the concept of basing one's identity to any degree on one's body size or shape, meaning the concept that underlies the language we use to describe ourselves, I am fat. He is overweight. They are skinny. Before we dive into that, I want to step back and give you a five-minute history of the context of that idea and of that language. What are we really talking about when we use the words overweight, underweight, normal, or obese? Well, what we're talking about, where those words come from, is BMI the body mass index. It's a calculation of our weight in kilograms divided by our height in meters squared. 
It's pretty much the reason your height and weight are taken at every doctor's visit, even the ones you go in there complaining of a sinus infection or a chest cold. Gotta get those critical measures of quote-unquote health, right? How could we possibly know whether you're imminently doomed to heart failure and diabetes if we don't know your BMI? (laughs) I have feelings and opinions about this, if you couldn't tell. So, turns out, despite its persistent use by the medical community at large, BMI is so flawed a measure of health that it's absurd. It's comical, or at least it would be comical, if the seriousness with which it's relied upon as an indicator of health didn't have serious consequences for people as patients. The body mass index, BMI, was named as such in the 1970s, but the formula's origin dates back 200 years to a mathematician and sociologist, among other things, named Adolf Quatlet. Quatlet was conducting a sociological study to define the characteristics of the ideal man, which he believed to be representative of the average or mean of the population. Like every other scientific, I say in giant air quotes, study from the 19th century, you can imagine that the data sample was heavily skewed. In fact, not even skewed, it was entirely comprised of white Europeans. And by some accounts I've read on this, likely white European men, though I won't report that as factual, more like an educated presumption. Anyway, Quatlet devised this formula in order to define the average or ideal weight of the ideal man for his sociological, let's be clear, (laughs) research study. His work was later used, sometimes with his consent, sometimes without, by governmental and other organizations for policy-making decisions, including eugenics, that is, mass sterilization of disabled people and other human beings not perceived as worthy of their own lives, let alone bringing new life into the world. Fast forward to the 1970s. Physicians and insurance companies had been sharing data for decades, and both were looking for the simplest, easiest way to get a measure of people's body fat, which was now understood to be correlated with overall health. A researcher named Ansel Keys and his team conducted a study of several indices being used across the medical and insurance fields and essentially settled on Quatlet's 200-year-old work as being as good as anything else, then noted that it was only accurate as an indicator of obesity less than 50% of the time, but whatever. That's actually in their final research paper quote, but whatever. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Then they renamed it the body mass index and called it a day. Any guesses as to why the BMI is accurate less than 50% of the time? It's because it was, from Quatlet himself, never intended to be used to assess an individual person, only populations. 
and never intended to be used to assess body build, body fat, or health. It was only intended to ascertain the average weight based on population. In an NPR article I'll link to in the show notes, the author points out that this is akin to knowing that the average family in the U.S. has 2.4 children, and then making assumptions and decisions about your neighbor who doesn't have 2.4 children. Exactly. It's absurd. And weight, of course, is not the same thing as fat. Our bodies are made up of a whole lot more than that. It is scientifically and just logically impossible to ascertain the amount of fat a human body contains by measuring height and weight. And, as came to be known more recently, neither weight nor even body fat itself are directly correlated with overall health or risks for serious disease. It is visceral fat, or the fat that surrounds the internal organs and can release chemicals into the bloodstream that can disrupt organ function and cause disease. Visceral fat can be present even in large amounts in bodies of any size. It's neither discernible to the naked eye nor measurable by simple measures like height, weight, or even circumference. So this argument that is always the fallback of those who feel entitled or generous enough to express it, that those of large body size, which is to say overweight or obese, according to a deeply flawed and meaningless formula, are imminently doomed to certain death and are a drain on the healthcare system. This argument is baseless, utterly. Oh, and the quote-unquote obesity epidemic you've heard so much about over the last 20 years? Did you know that that came about literally overnight? And you know when I use the word literally, I mean it, right? Hashtag grammar nerd. Hashtags don't work in podcasts, Phyllis. Well, a girl can dream. Anyway, (laughs) yes, one summer day in 1998, the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, which had been using BMI to assess body fat and health since 1985, changed their guidelines for overweight and obese by lowering the thresholds for those categories. Already by this time, over 50% of the population was considered overweight according to BMI, which if math has always worked in the same way, (laughs) meant that the average ideal, aka normal weight, that BMI was originally based on, had already moved up. And now, June of 1998, that is, when the NIH made their standards even stricter, suddenly over half the population is not only overweight, 
but even more are obese. Et voila! Obesity epidemic. My friends, the point of this history lesson is this. The perception that we have that weight or body size means anything about our health, let alone our personhood, it's bogus. It's not real. And yet I recognize, as I'm sure some of you do, the harm that can and that has come to ourselves and to one another when any of us buys into or believes the story that quote-unquote being fat or overweight means being a bad or flawed or ugly or unattractive or wholly unworthy person. I'm going to dive into that next. I think we can all agree that the arguments, the very strongly asserted arguments about the health dangers and the burdens on the healthcare system of so-called overweight and obesity are not and have never really been about health or money or resources. Certainly not when we're talking about everyday people making those arguments. Let's be real here. It's about a perception that fat is disgusting, repulsive, unappealing, ugly, unattractive, right? I mean, we've all had, or at the very least, been influenced or affected by this perception. But have you ever thought about where this actually comes from? I mean, why we think this way? Because it's not as simple an answer as the media or advertising. And I'm fairly certain that most of our parents didn't sit us down one day and give us the talk about thinking mean thoughts and saying mean things about other people's bodies or our own. And not everyone or everyone's parents struggled with weight and were taught shame because of it. So let me pose a different question. Have you ever thought about why rats or snakes or... Let me think of something that's perhaps even more universally accepted as gross. Maggots. Ugh. <laughs> have you ever really thought about why you have a visceral negative reaction to those things? Here's another example. What about fashion trends or even interior design styles? Have you ever thought about why, at least with some style trends, you don't just look at an old photo or an outdated home and kind of laugh that that was ever considered cool, but you're actually repelled by it? Like, yuck, that's hideous. Why do we think and react this way? Well, it's because we're conditioned into it. It's not just our parents or our extended family or our teachers, our communities, or the media. It's all of those things, and it's all of us. In other words, these collective perceptions are inescapable. We influence one another every moment of every day in every possible way. No one has to explicitly tell you that maggots are gross or that... I don't know, orange shag carpeting combined with yellow and green flower wallpaper and harvest gold appliances is ugly as hell. 
And the truth is, exactly like style trends, our collective perceptions about the ideal body shape or the attractiveness of any particular body shape change over time. The repulsiveness of maggots, on the other hand, yeah, I don't know if that's ever changing. But see, who knows? There may be some cultures today that find them delightful. Anyway, there is plenty of evidence through art and artifacts that from ancient times all the way through the Renaissance and beyond, the ideal body type for women included a very large bosom and belly and ass and thighs, rolls and all. And for men, well, the fatter you were, the richer you were. So that's pretty ideal, right? We would call those bodies obese today and think of them, well, off-putting, to put it kindly. Certainly something to be fixed and kept out of sight in the meantime. But just like a style trend, this is simply an idea about what's appealing and attractive. And while style trends tend to have shorter cycles, While this particular perception about body size has been in place for most of our lifetimes, that doesn't change the fact that it is just an idea that has and will continue to change over time. Truthfully, ideal body shape has changed many times over the last 200 years as well. It's just that we've yet to see an idealization of fatness come back into global consciousness. But we all know how cycles work, so. Are you beginning to see how odd it is to think that body shape should have so much meaning? How bizarre it is that our culture puts so much emphasis on bodies looking a certain way. How silly and just nonsensical it is to base our self-image, our identity around weight. I hope so. And with that, I have an invitation for you. Whether you've struggled with your own self-perception based on your body or not, my intention is to start to release the suffering that these perceptions perpetuate. So this invitation is for you and for me on behalf of all of us. First, a bit of background. The body positivity movement as we know it today really began in earnest around 10 years ago. And to be very general about it, these are the two sort of camps coexisting within the movement. This is the way that I see it anyway. One camp is about reclaiming the word fat and celebrating fatness and bodies of all sizes. And the other camp is about body neutrality. In other words, neither shaming nor celebrating body types and just allowing all bodies to exist without added story or perception one way or the other. So my invitation to you is this. Can you find ways to celebrate the body you're in and therefore celebrate and allow or even invite others to celebrate theirs? And if that doesn't resonate or 
if you feel like that's a space you'd like to be in, but you're just not there yet, can you embrace body neutrality and see the body you're in and other bodies just as they are? Period. Full stop. End of thought. This, by the way, is the camp that I choose to be in. You may have already guessed that by the way that I talk about my body and other bodies. For example, and this is a fantastic first step to begin to change your thought patterns around your body and self-image if you're open to trying. I usually refer to the body I'm in or my body's shape or my body's size because I, Phyllis, am not my body. My body is a vessel to carry me around. It belongs to me, but it is not me. Its shape is not my shape. Its weight is not my weight. Along those lines, if you're interested, check out Jamila Jamil's podcast called I Weigh. At the end of every interview, she asks her guests what they weigh. I'll leave it at that and let you hear for yourself. Anyway, I am by no means advocating one camp over the other. There are many aspects of myself and my life that I choose to celebrate. My body simply isn't one of those things. If you're in the celebration camp, though, I will absolutely celebrate you with you. You can find me and all episodes of this podcast at phyllis.wilson.pw. And hey, I've got something new for you. To get each episode weekly, plus additional commentary and resources from me, head over to my website, phyllis.wilson.pw, and enter your email address to subscribe to my brand new spanking new newsletter. <laughs> If you're on Instagram, you can find me at All Right Podcast. That's a great place to share your thoughts and questions about each episode. And finally, if you haven't already done so, don't forget to hit follow in your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode of We're All All Right. All Right.